Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Ziva. Hi, my name is Ziva, and I'm a very anxious, compulsive overeater. <laughs> and I will invite you to the argument that took place in my head today, most of the day, where my disease said, you don't qualify to share in that meeting. You are not thin enough, you are not perfect enough, you are not fit enough, and you are not young enough. And then my higher power very gently responded. And it was a back and forth. And basically, I'm here. So you know who won. And I am just going to ask my higher power to help me share my story in an honest and humble way. And I can tell you it's not a linear story. And it's not a story of perfection. And if anybody gets scared, go to other six meetings. You'll hear different stories. So I was born in Israel in a, let let me just give you, tell you that I've been in program 34 years and I am having now six years and seven months of abstinence. So you can do the math. And yes, and my abstinence is no dessert. That's the only thing I've done perfectly for six years and seven months is that I have not eaten any dessert. Okay, so now I'll go to the beginning. Um, So I was born in Israel, as you can tell by my heavy New York accent. (laughs) I was born in Israel and I was born into a family where there was a lot of sadness, pain, and chaos. And I found out at a very young age that food helped me regulate the anxiety that I was feeling. And I'm very grateful for that. And my memories as early as age two is asking for more food. And I remember having the first play date in preschool, and I remember the smell, you can allow, you can mention foods here, the smell of chocolate chip cookies baking in the oven when we, got, we went to that girl's house. So my childhood, my life was about food. And I'm grateful for food because if I didn't find food, I don't know where I would be. And it was around my teen years that I think I crossed the line from using food in a way that supported me to abusing food in a way that started damaging me. And it was around my teen years that I started the pattern. I wasn't a yo-yo person, so it wasn't like binging and restricting. It was binging and then recovering. And then once I was recovered enough, I would binge again. When I look at pictures today of those years, I was not overweight. I mean, I was 10 pounds overweight, but I felt obese. And so that continued that pattern. I was also babysitting a lot. They used to call me Mary Poppins because I babysat for those very, very wealthy celebrities in Israel. And when I... I stayed with the kids, and there was staff, you know, taking care of the house. My job was to entertain, and my idea of entertainment, you can imagine, with a credit card that 
nobody had credit cards then, and you know, for my friends, and I could go to any restaurant I could with those kids, and that was the main, you know, form of entertainment. So I I ate a lot, a lot, and I lied a lot, and I I was very lonely inside, even though on the outside I was surrounded by friends. Uh, in my 20s, I went to therapy, and after that, I met, met the man who became my husband, and when my daughter, who is now 36, was two, I went to, a, to my first OA meeting in Israel. Now, I met the man I married constantly criticized my body and my weight, and no matter how thin I was, it was never good enough. And later on I found out that he's a gay man, so he wanted me to look like a boy, which I didn't. And I would just get that part out of the way. Later on I found out that I'm gay too. So I just get it out of the way. So, so I would just tell you that if you are a newcomer, a straight woman with children, it's not going to happen to you. It's not it's, it's not part of the package deal of recovery. <laughs> but anyway, we, so anyway, I was married to a man. I had no idea about myself, no clue. I'm married to a man who constantly judges me. And no matter how thin I am, I'm not thin enough. And even when I was size four, and the pictures go around so you can see how I looked when I was really thin, he said, if you lose like five, ten more pounds, you'll really look good. Now, I can't blame him. I chose him, and I think that because of where I'm coming from and because of the pathology that happened in my family, I needed a man that will not be interested in me and that will judge me because we both thought the same about me. <laughs> like, I agreed with him. <laughs> so, when my daughter was two, I went to my first OA meeting in Israel, and 34 years ago in Israel, OA didn't look like it looks now. It was more like a, a club with people who understood me. And I enjoyed talking to them, and I enjoyed going to meetings, but we didn't really know what recovery was. We didn't understand the spiritual piece of the program. The book that we translated to Hebrew, the first book, was Food for Thought. Not the big book, God forbid. It was Food for Thought. And <laughs> it's like, but, you know, today OA Israel is thriving. And it's like any other program in the country. I don't know how OA was here 35 years ago, but there. So I live in Israel. I was in the program for four years before we immigrated to the United States. And the minute I arrived here, I started going again to meetings. And it was in program that I gained my weight. You'll see the pictures of how I looked when I entered the program. I was maybe size 12, 14, and it was in program that I got to be size 24. So again, I don't want to scare anyone. It's just my story. But that was my story. I mean, and I think I, I, what, you know, I, what I did is I would drive 100 miles to hear the best speaker in the universe. I lived in New York, I lived in New England, I lived, if anybody said, you know, there is an amazing speaker in Long Island, I would go and hear the speaker. But then on the way home, I would binge to celebrate their recovery. <laughs> so, I think that the, 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 missing, the missing link in my program was that I didn't realize that if I want what you have, I need to be willing to sit through a lot of discomfort. 
because none of those amazing speakers had it all together. But I wanted to just listen to them and be struck abstinent. And it doesn't work that way. Then I found how. For some of you probably know what how is, and for those who don't, it's a very strict way of working the program. And I did how for 10 years, and that's when I lost a lot, a lot of weight. But it was a very white-knuckling, punitive way for me. I know people that still work how, and it works for them, and it's wonderful. For me, it was like, it was a very punitive, horrible way of working the program. And I gained and lost 75 pounds in how more than once. And the last time was, I was in a wedding. I wasn't in a wedding. I I was a guest in a wedding. And I made a decision that since I can't eat any any of the hors d'oeuvres and the appetizers, I will allow myself as many vegetables as I wanted without dips. And then I have the meal. So I thought it was great recovery. So I called my sponsor the next day, and I chose the most rigid sponsor. And one of my friends is here from those days who knows who he was. Anyway, I called him the next day, and I said, this is what I did, you know, in the wedding. And he said, we're counting day one today. You broke your abstinence. And I, we're not allowed to swear here, I was told. But that's the only place I would like to swear. But I won't. So I said, I will show you breaking my abstinence and I gained 75 pounds at him he really you know was hurt by that <laughs> so I left the how and I said how is not working for me and I I just tried and I would go to meetings and I would come abstin- I would become abstinent for a week and then I would binge again and I would become abstinent for two weeks and then it's just I couldn't get it and by, my binges were more and more <coughs> destructive and and they paralyzed me and they made me sick and I I was just miserable now by this time by the way I'm already divorced and I have three kids not one at this point of my story and you know it said in the big book that if you need outside help you should seek it and I went to therapy in order to find out what where is this my binges were about self-hate and aggression. They were not gentle, gourmet, Mary Jane kind of a binge. It was, no, Sweet Lady Jane, not Mary Jane. Sorry, Sweet Lady Jane. They were like shoving in, you know, food after food and sweet and then something salty and then ice cream and then chips and then, I mean, it, it didn't end. And then I would lie down and I would like feel sick but... I would do it again. So I went to therapy and I, I found the reasons to what happened to me and why there was so much self-hate. And of course, I won't go into it here, but that process took care of that horrific binging. So I wasn't abstinent yet. I wasn't able to really be kind and loving to myself, but that horrific binges ended then which is, was already a first step towards recovery. And what I realized in those years that I've been in program was that the people who had what I want, and of course when I got into the program, you know, when you're in your 20s, what you, at least what I wanted first was just being thin. But what I wanted at that point, which is like 10 years ago, 
was somebody that has a healthy relationship with people in their lives, with their body, and with food. And that's what I wanted. And I realized that the people who have that have only one thing in common. There are different genders, different ethnic groups, different professions, different religions, different anything. They, they only have one thing in common. And that's the willingness to be on a spiritual path. Just the willingness. And I wasn't willing because I, I grew up, you know, my mom, her entire family was slaughtered in the Holocaust, 27 members. She was the sole survivor. And she said, there is no God. We were never allowed to go to temple. There is no God. So it was really hard for me to even conceive the idea of having a relationship with a power greater than myself. And what happened about 10 years ago is that I read a book that is not a program book, but it's a book about a spiritual leader whose son was sick and died. And he talks about how he challenged his belief and how he was looking again for God. And he says in the book that what he had to believe in is that when bad things happen, God cries. And that one line changed everything and made me willing to open up to that notion. Because I understood that when the Holocaust happened, God cried. He didn't do it. And when the war is now in the Middle East, God cries. He doesn't do it. So that like opened my heart to having a relationship with a higher power. And that's what made the difference. And I, the relationship at the beginning was rocky because I would occasionally ask God for help. I would occasionally write letters to God. But it wasn't deep like it is right now. And, and what happened six years and seven months ago was that I was still, I wasn't abstinent, I wasn't binging morbidly, but I was just still in this place of not a healthy place. And it was December 22nd, 2007, and I was driving out of In-N-Out Burger on my way to an ice cream shop because that goes together. And I called the woman who was my sponsor at the time, and I said... That's what I'm doing. And she said to me, and I said, and it's a waste of your time. I really think you should find somebody to sponsor that can get it because I'm, by that time I'm 25 years in the program and I'm still doing it. So she said, I don't know if you're asking me to hold on to you or to let go of you. And I said, I don't know. And she said, are you willing not to have ice cream tonight? And I said, let me think about it. <laughs> so we hang up the phone. I pull my car over and I close my eyes and I said, okay, God, my pattern is to call after and say, I did it again. I feel like a piece of shit. And then she would say, you're not a bad person. And that's my pattern. The fact that I called before means, God, that something in me is shifting and willing. So can you help me not eat ice cream tonight? And that was the last time, I mean, I didn't have ice cream since December 22nd, 2007. And how it happened, I don't know. You know, when I was like 15 years in program and still binging, somebody gave me a postcard that said, don't leave before the miracle. And it shows like a train, you know, going around the corner and you don't see, you know, the, the turn. And, and it just happened that day. I mean, I don't know what was different that day. So... Um, basically, 
that has been my abstinence is that I haven't eaten dessert. I would say, now I'll talk from like physical, emotional, and spiritual. How long do I have? 20 More? Okay. <laughs> so, from the physical level, physical perspective, I would say that 87% of the time, and don't anyone ask me where did you come up with this number, 87% of the time I eat in a way that is healthy, moderate, organic, beautiful, I mean like healthy and great. And 13% of the time I still make sometimes poor choices. I still overeat sometimes. Not dessert. If I eat a dessert, I broke my abstinence. But I still, you know, struggle. And I am hoping to change, I mean, it used to be 90% bad, 10 good. So 87, 13 is progress. But I would like to go, you know, a little further in the, in the percentage. And a few months ago, I gave up health bars because I realized that I can't eat them the way they are intended. <laughs> like, somebody who works with me is a jogger. So she has a health bar that it takes her two days to eat. It's in her drawer. <laughs> and again, we are not supposed to swear, but this is where I would like to swear. <laughs> I mean, she comes to work after jogging six miles, and, you know, she takes, like, few little crumbs, and she eats them. And I'm like, so I decided, you know, I can eat bars sometimes. I mean, I hear people talk about bars, so I would buy them. And I would eat them like the second after dinner or the second after breakfast. It wasn't really to sustain me when there is like, like my sponsor said, if you are flying and you are like, there are five hours between meals and you need one, we'll talk about it. But so that's off. Now, now I'm praying for the willingness to remove, I remove chips. Because again, I would say it whole food, lentil chips. Doesn't it sound healthy or uh, azuki bean chips I mean organic or, now they add the word organic to everything even chips organic so I would eat that so that's over but I'm still praying for the willingness to give up crackers because that's so that's on the physical the emotional because of my background and my, my childhood and my history I have a tendency to catastrophize my mother taught me through breast milk that horrific things can happen in one day. Her entire family, parents, nephews, nieces, were all slaughtered. So I grew up knowing that catastrophizing is something real. I mean, something horrible can happen. It's not just a fantasy, only that I am now many years later, and the catastrophizing is, is the hardest challenge in my life these days and I tend to do it all the time and I am developing different ways to deal with it because this is what can bring me to the food that's why I'm sharing it here because when I catastrophize I catastrophize about something that didn't happen that can happen tomorrow or about something that happened in the past so meditation is what I use to help me with catastrophizing because when I meditate, I'm at the moment. And right now, in the moment, in spite, bless you, in spite of how scared I was coming here, and in spite of all the chatter in my head, I'm fine right now. And I feel good. 
So it's always the catastrophizing is either there or there. It's not about the moment. So I'm trying to, to meditate regularly, not trying. I have been meditating regularly for five years, every single day of my life, even in a hotel room, but I have to be honest and humble only for five minutes. So somebody can say, five minutes? I mean, that's like a joke. You know what? Five minutes for five years every day is better than nothing. And when I leave the house in the morning without meditating, I know the difference. I'm more scattered and I'm more crazy. Now, five minutes is the minimum. I can meditate more, but that's the minimum and that's what I usually do in the morning. So that's from the emotional part. And from the, from the spiritual part, I, I really ask God to help me every day throughout the day. And I can give you three examples just from the last three days. On Thursday, I had a day that I was very upset at work. I was upset because of what's going on politically. I was upset because of many reasons, and I was extremely tired. And I went to Trader Joe's with a list of three items, and suddenly the thought crossed my mind that pretzels is really something good. It's not high calories. It's crunchy, and it will take away, you know, my, the, en the, the energy. I mean, anyway. So I closed my eyes and I said, God, today is not a good day for me to eat pretzels, I know, but I need your help because I'm going to bite now. And I can bite another day, but not on a day that I'm angry, hungry, and tired. And please help me. And then I was at the cashier. I don't even know where the pretzels were. I, even, I didn't even stop there. So that's an example. Also, I've been feeling some criticism and judgment of some people at work this is something funny because I've been praying I've been asking God to help me have an open heart to them but then my catastrophizing kicked in and I said yes you'll have an open heart surgery soon don't ask for an open heart <laughs> so now instead of asking for an open heart I'm playing and asking God to open to fill my heart with compassion because open heart scares me now so I'm not saying open heart but, but that's an example you know and, I w and the other thing you know I work in a job where I see clients and many times before I walk in a, into a session I ask God to, be, to make me a channel of love and kindness and I do it every time every single time because it helps me settle and it brings me back to the moment so that's, you know, from the spiritual perspective. And I know that because I'm abstinent, because I'm abstinent, I'm in a healthy relationship. None, I was in, never in a good relationship before, and I'm in a healthy relationship. I have a great relationship with my children. I have a career that I never had. I'm able to stick to a commitment and to show up. And when Sarah called me three months ago and said, could you be talking in, uh, on July 26, it didn't cross my mind, I don't know if I'll be abstinent. It was, I know that if I do today what I did yesterday, I would be abstinent one more day. And, and I think I will end now and open up for questions. Yes, how do I feel towards my mother? So unfortunately, my mother passed away, but I feel so, so grateful 
that I was able to forgive her and to love her in the last few years of her life. And she didn't change. It's not that I got a lot back, but I was able to give it. And that was the biggest gift, you know, of this program. And, and one of the things that helps me, she was very depressed. She never smiled her entire life. But I found a picture of her holding me as a six-month-old baby. And she looks at this baby and she's glowing. So when I look at this picture, and I know that's how I looked at my kids, I look at this picture and I'm thinking, this woman who looked at this picture didn't look at this baby and said, I'm going to fuck her her up. Sorry. <laughs> that, that, that's not bad. It's only one. So, this, this woman looked at this baby and was her heart was so full with joy. So that's the mother I now want to remember. And that's the mother I'm in touch with. But I forgave her and I'm glad that I had the actual experience of taking care of her and being with her until she passed away from cancer. What is catastrophizing and how did I move through it? So I'm still struggling with it and I'm still moving through it and I think it will be something that will be challenging me for the rest of my life. But what I realized through program and therapy and meditation is that when I meditate, I I don't catastrophize. When I sit still and breathe, even if it's for five minutes, there is no catastrophe at that moment. So after sharing about it in therapy and understanding where the catastrophizing is coming from and why it's weighing on me, I understand now that meditation for me is the answer and prayer, asking God to help me stay in the moment. That's one thing. And I also have now few visuals, like if I start catastrophizing, like I would have dinner with my son and his girlfriend and all of a sudden this picture will go through my head of something bad happening to them. So I I, I envision a stop sign, a red stop sign, like in my my vision, I envision it and I immediately stop and say thank you God and, and I continue the evening and I enjoy them. So it's a daily work. It's not that it was removed. So the 87.13, is there a pattern? Yes. It's, I mean, there is no pattern, but it's what you said. There, there will be few great days, and then, like last week, I had to work one day until 9 at night, and I didn't plan. And they say in program, when you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So I ended up buying lunch from a place close to work that was not a great choice for me, and that made me feel full to the point of discomfort, bloated. And I don't like that feeling anymore. I like eating to the point of being feeling good and not full. So that's an example. So it could be this kind of thing. Or like flying. You know, I've been traveling quite a bit in the last six months, and that another time. You know, that I know that if I want to take care of myself, I need to pack my food, plan what I'm going to eat, bookend it with my sponsor, And if I just leave to the airport with my luggage, with no food that I can eat, that's not a good sign. That's the 13% kicking in. So it's failing to plan and sometimes not being mindful of the fact that I might be right now hungry, angry, lonely, or tired and just making a poor choice. 
also, you know, another thing is that there are foods that I have on my yellow list, foods that I am doing better if I don't eat them, and I can eat them in certain ways. Like, for example, rice. I didn't cook rice in probably seven years because I can't have a pot of rice in the house. But if I'm in a restaurant and they serve me a portion, I can have it. So my 13% could be cooking something, not this specific item, but something that I shouldn't cook. And then having a hard time eating it in a, in a moderate way. Do I have at times doubts about God and what do I do? Yes. I have, I mean, I, I think that my journey, as I said in the beginning, is not a linear journey. So it's not like I found God and now, I, I know now that I have a God and most of the time I believe that that God lives inside of me and inside you. And when I ask for help, I really ask for that part in me that knows better to help me. And at times I feel like the God is outside and I'm praying for this universal power or something. And there are times when I, I don't question anymore God and I don't blame God for any bad thing. But there are times that I forget that I can reach out and get my help. That's, that's my problem. It's not questioning it. It's forgetting to reach out. Because one thing I know for fact, whenever I reach out, I get the help. So whether it comes from inside or from outside, it doesn't matter. But I do many times forget. I felt hopeless many times. And I have one friend here who has known me in those hopeless days. I was very hopeless and very depressed and, and paralyzed with depression and, and hopelessness. And I think the only reason I came back, because I had nowhere else to go. I remember when I was like in the depths of my disease, one of my close friends said, let's go to Weight Watchers. I said, that's wonderful, let's go. So we went. She's still there now, 10 years later, and at her goal weight, and, and has never gained her weight back. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You know, they told me I can have this snack at the end of the meal, and I had the box at the end of the meal. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's Weight Watchers is a really balanced, beautiful way of eating. So anyone that it works for them, you know, it's wonderful. But So that's the answer. Yes, I was very hopeless, and I just didn't have where to go. And, and I must say that whenever I came back to OA, no matter how obese I was, or how desperate I was, or how depressed I was, there was always someone who gave me a hug and smiled at me. There were always so people who didn't give me a hug and didn't look at me, because they were scared. And many of those people are no longer in program. But people were scared that, you know, that's contagious, and they will break their head. <laughs> so, yes. How I use the team, how I build my team and use the tools of the, pro the program. So I really had to create for myself a community in these rooms. And it wasn't easy because many people were scared. You know, here I am, you know, I'm articulate, funny, you know, and then, and it looks like she has it together. She's been abstinent now for like three weeks. And boom, she goes out and she comes back and she's depressed and she's... So it took some people to really trust 
in my abstinence. And the sign said, thank you. <laughs>